All right, it's almost five after, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, so Dr. James Snyder was supposed to be doing an introduction to diagnostic stewardship today, and he wasn't able to make it, so I threw together some slides this morning. I'm going to do a quick 10 to 15 minute introduction to diagnostic stewardship, and then Audrey Hawkins is going to talk about blood cultures and kind of what happens after you order the blood cultures, and they'll go, those go into the lab. So let's just uh, start off with what is diagnostic stewardship? So this area was more kind of firmly de uh, designated around 2017, but I think you'll see as we go through the quality improvement aspects of diagnostic stewardship have been going on longer than that. And I think what's important for this group to understand is this is really a core element as part of antimicrobial stewardship programs. So we talked about last month that antimicrobial stewardship programs are mandated now for hospital systems and this is one of those core elements so it's an important concept um, to be exposed to so this diagram here shows and kind of defines a little bit of diagnostic stewardship so it's really thinking about the ordering the processing and reporting of results and then the antimicrobial stewardship goes hand in hand with that because once you get those results, what we're hoping is that leads to some type of antimicrobial modification and a directed therapy. I think an easier way to think about this is we spoke about antibiotic stewardship last month as being the right patient getting the right drug at the right dose by the right route for the right duration. Diagnostic stewardship mirrors that. Right? So we're talking about the right patient getting the right test at the right time, that once you get that test back as interpreted correctly, that leads to a therapeutic action. And then usually that therapeutic action is either going in and reevaluating your antibiotics or sometimes it's stopping them altogether. So if we think about the process by which we see a patient, think about what type of test we want and then how we use that test, you can see there's kind of major steps, right? We have to decide what to order. That test actually has to be collected by someone else that's usually not us. It needs to be processed by the lab and then we need to get some type of report back that we actually interact with to make decisions, right? And so what are some ways in which diagnostic stewardship can improve care? So when we're ordering, I think we should be asking their question all the time, is this test necessary? When I get the result back, is it going to help me establish a diagnosis or is it going to lead to some modification of treatment? If the answer is no, there's probably not a good reason to order that test and maybe we shouldn't be ordering that test. But what are some interventions that can help us order more correctly? So this may vex us sometimes, but institutions may either remove, restrict, or modify how we can order certain tests, right? So if there are certain tests that are overordered that are very expensive, it very well may be restricted by your institution. Or they can just uh, try to provide decision support. Sometimes that's a pop-up box or something else within the EMR that can help us. So an example of this is our syphilis testing. In the past, we would have to order a separate RPR and a treponemal-specific test, right? Now when you order it, that treponemal IgG automatically reflexes to the RPR. If that didn't happen, we'd get the test back and say, oh, could they have syphilis? Then we'd have to order the RPR. It would take more time. So by doing this and lumping these orders together, we're actually saving time and getting to our diagnostic um, criteria quicker. What about collection? You know, are the collection methods that we're using adequate to prevent contamination? So for infectious disease diagnostics, because our body basically has more bacterial cells than eukaryotic cells, this becomes a big issue, right? And we can think about how many blood cultures we have, and there's always that question, is this contamination or is this real? So what can we do to improve our collection methods? So we have institutional policies on how these specimens should be collected. Now, I think there's question on whether they always happen that way, right? So when you're ordering a urine specimen in a patient with a Foley, is this being drawn from the Foley bag where it shouldn't? Or is it actually being drawn from the hub of the catheter? Is it a fresh catheter? Is it something that's been in a long time? So a diagnostic stewardship may be the team going and reviewing those orders and working with the people that are actually drawing the labs to make sure and provide education that they're done correctly. For the lab processing, you know, are there things that the lab can do to improve our diagnostic accuracy? 
And so some of these are, like the syphilis testing, incorporating multi-step testing to improve our accuracy, right? So C. diff testing. At one point, a lot of institutions were just doing PCR tests for C. diff. The rates were sky high. When you coupled that with a second test, those rates became lower. And what we realized is that most of the time, if you're looking at just PCR, the presence of a bacteria or not, you can't really differentiate infection versus colonization. Same thing with our urine testing algorithm, right? You have to have some type of pyuria or other uh, abnormality before you move on to culture. But we also can think about use of rapid diagnostics. So when we get our blood culture results and it's PCR positive for MEC-A suggesting that there's MRSA there, that gets me to a point where I can de-escalate therapy and target therapy quicker than if I had to wait for the culture for 48 to 72 hours. What about reporting? Is there things that we can do to guide appropriate practice with each test result? And so historically, our microbiology or sensitivity data is one of these areas. At one point, all we got is a list of drugs and numbers, and we had to identify which ones were within the breakpoints. Then they started adding the S, the R, the I for susceptible, resistant, intermediate, and now we just give the letters. But they also are now providing additional information. If you get a coag negative staph in your blood culture, there's going to be a comment. This may represent contamination. So this is all part of diagnostic stewardship, not overruling the physician, but at least trying to nudge them in the right direction. So let's take uh, asymptomatic bacteria as a good example of stewardship interventions. So we've talked about this before. We'll continue to talk about it because it continues to be a big problem. So asymptomatic bacteria is culture of bacteria in the urine in the absence of signs or symptoms of infection, right? This is super common. Up to 60% of elderly patients, if you've had a catheter in more than three or four days, 100% of those catheters are gonna become colonized. And this over-treating leads to a massive over-prescribing, but also a lot of adverse events. If they're on antibiotics, they're gonna have longer hospital stays. You're gonna have increased risk of C. diff infections and more side effects, right? So what are the diagnostic stewardship intervention. So I think if we think about this from a diagnostic stewardship perspective, what we realize is that that overtreatment of that asymptomatic bacteria really is the result of inappropriate ordering of urine cultures. Because we know a lot of these cultures are going to become positive. So what can we do? Well, you can provide education or EMR prompts. When you put in that order, what are their symptoms? Is it appropriate to actually be getting the urinalysis? We can work on better culture collection techniques. This continues to be a problem, I'd say, in, in our hospital. What about processing in the lab? Well, right now, for the last couple years, we've had a UA with a reflex culture, right? If you don't have pyuria, or if you have evidence of contamination, they're not necessarily going to do that culture. Now, unfortunately, with that, I'd like to have notifications sometimes of like, hey, this culture got thrown out because of this. That doesn't always happen, but I think there's room for improvement there. And then reporting, you know, you often see micro reports that say, oh, this has more than three organisms likely contamination. So again, trying to nudge a really common problem towards improved outcomes. And does that work? So this is a paper from 2021 where they basically looked at their appropriate in gray and inappropriate in yellow antibiotic use related to urine testing before and after they put in a reflex system. And you can see there wasn't any change in appropriate antibiotics overall, but there was a really big decrease in inappropriate antibiotic prescription. And that's what we're really aiming for with a lot of these interventions. Now, when you do things like couple multiple tests together, we do get changes in the test characteristics, right? So our positive predictive value may go up because we're using those dual tests, but you will have some degree of a loss of specificity. So we are going to have to accept that we're going to miss some diagnoses sometimes. Now, I know that's worrisome because we never want to miss a diagnosis, but I think if you think about the sheer volume of these tests that we do, most of these tests, if we miss it, those patients going to come back on that second test, they're going to become positive. So it's something we certainly need to consider with we do diagnostic stewardship. How are we changing that kind of balance in the test characteristics? So, what are some other areas of major kind of diagnostic stewardship interventions? And that's just, this is not necessarily at U of L, but really nationwide. And so you can see we have all of these different types of tests. We have point of care tests in infectious diseases. We have our microbiology tests. We have 
kind of exploding next-gen sequencing and molecular analyses. But really, it's all of these tests like urine cultures, blood cultures, respiratory cultures, and C. diff, where we're having to make the, the distinction. I got a positive test, what does that mean? Is this an infection or is this colonization? And that's, that's the hard part, and that's what probably me and my ID colleagues deal with the most, is helping people interpret these tests that get sent. Just a brief mention on molecular diagnostics. So if we think about the false positives that we get here, this is even gonna make that higher, right? Because this is a more sensitive test. It's gonna pick up anything that's present. So if you send this on something like urine, you're gonna get multiple potential bugs and it may not be that all of them are the problem. Maybe none of them are the problem. Maybe it's just one. It gets harder to interpret those results. So what are the benefits of diagnostic stewardship interventions? So our goal is to have a decrease in either overdiagnosis or our false positive rates, right? So if we think about things like catheter-associated UTI, catheter-associated bloodstream infection, and C. diff, these are all publicly reported metrics. They are linked to hospital reimbursement. So if we overdiagnose these, hospital revenue goes down, reputation goes down, so it's really important that we have a firm diagnosis and we don't have technology that overemphasizes the problems that may be present. This also, I think, an underappreciated is decreases the anchoring of wrong diagnoses, right? So how often do we have somebody in the hospital, oh, their culture is positive, that's what's wrong with them. Five days later, they've been on antibiotics, they're not getting better, and we finally revisit their diagnosis and say, was well, this really the problem all along? So there's been several cases of patients uh, with IBD who were undiagnosed that tested positive for C. diff, went through weeks and weeks of C. diff testing because they were having diarrhea, which delayed their ultimate diagnosis of IBD. You know, these patients are at higher risk of having C. diff colonization anyways, so it's easy to see how that would happen. You know, obviously part of the stewardship program is we want to decrease unnecessary antibiotic use. And I think, you know, from a internal medicine standpoint, our goal that couples with that is decreasing hospital stay, decreasing side effects, and then decreasing costs. So here are some examples of different stewardship procedures um, from a paper that came out this year. And you can see it's not just the things like C. diff or UTIs that we've talked about, but even things like pulmonary embolism and the diagnosis of that, that if you can couple that with um, metrics, can we do things like decrease CT scan testing? That's big cost to the healthcare system and big cost to patients if we don't need it. So I wanna leave with um, something called Choosing Wisely. This was an initiative started by the American Board of Internal Medicine back in 2013. And so basically it was a list and they had went to all of these subspecialty organizations and say, what are some practices that we should be avoiding to save patient side effects, to save patient costs? And again, it's really diagnostic stewardship in many cases, trying to couple that right test at the right time, interpret it right to therapeutic action. So these are the Infectious Disease Society of America, things that uh, physicians and patients should question back from 2015. So don't treat asymptomatic bacteria. Avoid prescribing for antibiotics for upper respiratory infections, especially if they have a viral infection. You know, don't give antibiotics for stasis dermatitis, which isn't an infection to begin with. Don't test for C. diff if you don't have diarrhea. Avoid prophylactic antibiotics for mitral valve prolapse. So you can see several of these are things that we are still actively working on even seven, eight years later. So it's a problem because a lot of times we anchor and say, oh, I want to get the test just in case to make me feel better. When I think we don't really recognize the fact that over-treating with antibiotics is not a zero-cost intervention, that there are risks associated with it. And so with that, I'm going to pass it over to Audrey and let her talk about blood cultures and some of the... All right, thank you, Dr. Doster. So as he mentioned, you saw on that slide there, things like C. diff, diagnostic stewardship, upper respiratory culture, there's a whole slew of things of diagnostic stewardship that become important. But one of the most unnerving things, right, is having your patient potentially be septic and you're waiting for those blood cultures to come back and they come back and you don't know what to make of them or you don't know what that process looks like or you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're trying to figure out what's going on with that blood culture and if you should raise some alarm bells. 
Well, that process uh, is a little bit lengthier in explanation, and so that's why we wanted to talk about it today as a separate process. We'll talk about like UTI diagnostic stewardship and C. diff diagnostic stewardship throughout our discussions this year with our different disease states, but we decided that this determined uh, it needed its own lecture. We're going to go over a few things today. So we're going to go over indications for blood culture ordering because, of course, that is very important with diagnostic stewardship and getting a high yield result for your culture. We're going to do a brief review of gram staining. This is, uh, as Dr. Snyder calls it, the most overutilized and abused test that we have. However, it's very efficient and quick. And then an overview of our blood culture process and what happens here in our ULH lab. So we are very, very um, grateful that we have Dr. Snyder here in our lab. He's brought some wonderful rapid diagnostics to our institution. However, if you don't know how those things work and you don't know how to interpret them, then they're not really worth the money. So that's what we're here doing is trying to show you how to interpret these and to act faster. First, indications of blood cultures. How many times have you seen a patient that spikes a fever and they get blood cultures ordered. And then you're waiting, waiting, waiting. Maybe you start antibiotics, you're waiting for those cultures to come back. Although, you know, their fever subsided, you figured out with something else, but now you're stuck with this 48 hour window of antibiotics because you're waiting for their blood cultures to come back. Well, these indications for blood cultures are really important. And again, highlighting the importance of pretest probability and your patient's clinical scenario. So this was from a paper in 2020 called something along the lines of, does my patient need this blood culture, right? Very clear. And they break them up into high probability all the way down to low probability. So you can see here what's really coming into play is you want to make sure your patient has a clinical syndrome that makes you think sepsis, septic shock. Do they have something like discitis or vertebral osteomyelitis where it's likely that that was a, uh, a spread from the bloodstream infection to that site? Or do they have something that's a little bit less risky like ventilator-associated pneumonia or cellulitis? Uh, they deem Severe comorbidities is a little bit higher risk than you'll see in uncomplicated cellulitis. But cystitis, your patient shouldn't have a bacteremia from cystitis, right? So why would we get blood cultures if that was their presenting infection? Certainly happens, but you want to start thinking of things like pyelonephritis and taking that patient into consideration to see if they do meet indications for a blood culture order. There is a study that Dr. Snyder and some of the pathology fellows are working on looking at clinical criteria for ordering blood cultures. And so far, they have found that only 48% of our blood cultures that are ordered meet this diagnostic criteria. So over half of our blood cultures that we are ordering do not meet a clinical criteria. And I wanna highlight again here that an isolated fever or a fever within 48 hours after surgery, those things are not standalone reasons to order blood cultures and can put you down this path of thinking infection when in reality, it's something else. So repeat blood cultures is also something that comes up quite frequently, right? Do I need to get repeat blood cultures for this patient? Do they have an infection and I'm checking for clearance or I'm checking for improvement? And this is something that is also, as aside from initial ordering of blood cultures, this is also something that gets overutilized. So I wanted to highlight the indications for ordering repeat blood cultures. These are concerned for endovascular infection. Does your patient have a device or something that would predispose them to an endovascular infection in which you wanna make sure that you have either gotten the source or you wanna check for clearance and improvement in that endovascular infection. Staphylococcus aureus and Staphylococcus lugdunensis, these are two Staphylococcus species that are known to cause, they're very, very sticky, so they can have high rates of endocarditis, high rates of additional sequelae of infection. So there's a lot of data in these two specific bacteremias with repeat blood cultures and assessing for clearance and basing your therapy off of that. Of course, I always say, if your patient doesn't improve within 72 hours on the appropriate therapy, maybe we should start digging into something else. So maybe something else has come up, maybe their organism is now resistant. And so certainly in those patients that haven't defervesced within that 72 hours, it's recommended to evaluate if you need repeat blood cultures. And then lastly, an unknown source or a source with a known difficult antimicrobial penetration. So these are things like abscesses. Um, intra-abdominal infections, things that potentially you might have a harder time, prostatitis, getting your patient an antibiotic to that area. Uh, blood cultures are technically not FDA approved for surveillance and test of cure. 
So just something to think about. These are not necessarily useful for tests up here. When we talk about gram-negative bacteremia and gram-positive bacteremias later in this year, we'll highlight the differences in those and the importance of repeat cultures and what happens when you do order repeat cultures um, inadvertently or not necessary. Uh, and so they really do lead to prolonged stays in the hospital, prolonged lengths of therapy, uh, and adverse effects. So just keep that in mind when you're thinking, do I need to order repeat cultures? Is it going to be relevant to your patient? All right, so you ordered blood cultures, right? Now what happens? We're gonna talk about this timeline. I think this timeline is one of the biggest questions that I get is, hey, we order these blood cultures. How long do we expect? What's going to happen in this situation? When should I expect a result? So I want to bring up this timeline for you. And again, this is specific to UofL because of our wonderful rapid diagnostics that we have, but I'll try to compare as we go along. But first I want to ask, does anyone know how many blood culture bottles are in a set? What does this appropriate ordering look like for blood cultures at our institution? Two bottles, two different sites, far away from each other. That's like 10 cc's of blood, I think. Yeah, there you go. You got the whole slide. <laughs> yeah, so that was the whole slide. Great job, 100%. Uh, so the goal of this is you get two bottles per draw. You get an aerobic and an anaerobic. Those bottles look like hot sauce bottles, I think, personally. Uh, so what is in those bottles? Those bottles are specifically made for the technology that we have here. And there, uh, it creates a perfect environment for either an aerobic or an anaerobic organism to survive, depending on the bottle. But it also has some things in there that help kind of you know, break down the antimicrobials to help increase the rates of positivity. So we have the really cool technology here. But yes, you're right. So our power plan that we have is uh, one anaerobic, one aerobic, and you'll get two sets of those. So that's four bottles, right? Like you said, eight to 10 mLs each. So that's about 40 mLs of blood. And then within eight hours, they want you to get another set. Does anyone know why we want this extra set? There's a few reasons, but I think one main big one. Contamination, did I hear that? So something that happens a lot is you'll see either a butterfly put in and they just pop on two blood culture bottles. Perfect, thank you. But have you ever looked at a needle, right? It's like a, it's got a little circle and opening in it. You're essentially taking a skin punch biopsy of that patient every single time you're getting blood cultures. Well, that skin goes somewhere and it usually goes into the blood culture bottle. And so by getting this extra blood culture set within eight hours, so at a different time, this is why getting them from two different sites at two different times is so important because you're really wanting to decide if this is a contamination or if this is a true bacteremia. There's also some data on persistent bacteremia or uh, bacteremia that may not necessarily be like a transient bacteremia with this difference in timing, but really the contamination comes into play here. All right, so you got your blood culture bottles and they go into this massive refrigerator looking thing called the BD BACTEC. So BD is a brand like tissue Kleenex. BACTEC is the device. It stands about the height of a refrigerator. And what this does is tells you positivity. So this is really nice for our microtechs because they can pop these bottles in there, go about their day and it'll pop positive. It'll ding positive when something is popped up. Before they would just have to continuously monitor them for like growth, cloudiness, it could be a very, very lengthy process. So this is so nice. They can go through and do things throughout the day and then it'll tell them if it's positive. And how this happens are in these hot sauce bottles, as I like to refer to them, there is a little resin disc. And when the bacteria start to grow because they're in this perfect environment to grow, these bottles are really helping them ramp up and divide, they start to produce CO2. And that CO2 binds to the resin and puts off a fluorescence. And so this machine is going through looking for that fluorescence and it'll ding and say, hey, you've got a positive bottle. It doesn't tell you what's in the bottle. It doesn't tell you anything about it. All it says is, hey, this one's positive. You should check it out. That takes about eight to 12 hours. And something I want to highlight is that they, if you order a bacterial blood culture, they're only keeping these for five days and then they toss them out. If they're not positive, they're thrown. So if you're thinking something like maybe some endemic fungi or you're looking for AFB, like tuberculosis for some reason, if that's in your blood, uh, but the, you would need to send those specific cultures so that denotes to them or you need to call down and communicate with the lab because if not, they'll throw these away after five days and we know those things take a little bit longer to grow. So that's why we have the different sets of blood culture ordering and really culture ordering altogether. And it takes about eight to 12 hours. And what you'll see here is a theme of when we are requiring growth. We'll see a little bit longer time. So you have to think to yourself, I can't get a positive blood culture result until 
it has grown. And we try to speed that growing up with the environment that we put them in, but it still is up to the organism to grow at that point. After you get a positive blood culture, they take it out of the back tech and they'll perform a gram stain. Again, the quickest, easiest, most overutilized test that we have, and this is the first result that you will see. Based on that gram stain, they'll put it on the varigine panel that we're going to talk about. Um, but really, the gram stain is a very important part because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about a gram stain. And I'm going to take it back to old school biology, microbiology in college. You can always tell where the gram stain sink is because it's pink, purple, it's, it stains everything, right? But gram stain is a very quick process that is dependent on the cell wall of the organism. So that's how you get gram positive, gram negative organisms. Essentially what you do is you have your bacterial smear on the slide so that blood culture is positive, they take it out, they smear it on the slide, and then they go through this dyeing process. What happens with this dyeing process is first you apply crystal violet stain, you let it sit. In gram-positive organisms, they have a very thick peptidoglycan layer that just gets saturated with that purple color and holds it. So when you try to counterstain it, wash it off, counterstain it with something else, that purple color holds. So that's why you get the purple color for a gram-positive organism. Now with gram-negatives, they have a much thinner peptidoglycan layer. It's very easily, easily washed out and counterstained. And then this last step, the saffronin, is a reddish-pinkish color. That's why you get your gram-negative organisms being that color. And this is very easily visualized. You can see here, maybe three to five minutes. You look it under the microscope and you report what you see. And in a blood culture, they have 60 minutes from that blood culture being positive to call to the floor, to the nurse, that you have a positive blood culture with gram-positive cocci, gram-negative rods, whatever it may be. So now I have a pop quiz, and we'll have some fun here with some gram-staining pictures. We just talked about what was gram-positive and what was gram-negative, but does anyone know on the top left, gram-positive, gram-negative, cocci, clusters, what does it look like? Staph aureus, yeah, we got, we got four. There we go. You guys just keep getting 100 initially. Yeah, gram-positive coxine clusters, and that's what will be reported on your gram stain. So that's when you're starting to think, okay, what do I know as a gram-positive coxine clusters? Staph aureus, you heard it. Staphylococcus species are gram-positive coxine clusters. What about the one on the very bottom? What does that look like? Strep species, yeah, jumping the gun. Gram-positive coccyes and pairs and chains is typically what it comes up as, and you're thinking strep species and intercoccus species is typically in pairs. Uh, but they can give you a lot of really good information on that initial gram stain. And then, of course, the top right, gram-negative rods, right? So these are things that we're thinking of, um, like E. coli, Klebsiella. Our microtechs are wonderful. Sometimes you'll call down there and they'll look and be like, this looks like a Stantrophomonas, and they can just tell you right from looking at that gram stain, which is completely insane, but it is what they're trained to do. So based on this, they'll give you the gram stain. They have to do that within an hour. That's the call you get, right? You get the call about gram-positive coccyne clusters. You think, am I concerned? Is this contaminant? What do I think about this? And it's not until later that you actually get your result, but you don't get that call about the result, right? That's why we want to do this. That way you know when to check back and when to make those decisions. And that takes five minutes. First thing you see. Important thing, nothing actually grows on a gram stain. This has already grown, you're just seeing it. It's like if you went and spit on a plate, you could gram stain it and see everything that's in your mouth. It's not that it actually grew, it's just that you put it, it grew in the blood cultures and you're gram staining to see it and then it has to grow again. So there's still time after that that you'll have to wait for. This is how it shows up with Cerner. Weirdly enough, you may have noticed it falls to the bottom every time you get a result. So you have to scroll. I've been burned before of like an MRSA in the blood culture and I didn't scroll far enough and there was also a gram negative rod. So just make sure you're scrolling down to see if your gram stain matches your final result. Been burned a few times on that. Based on this, this is how we decide which rapid diagnostic panel to put it on. And you're probably all thinking, maybe you've heard Varagene. Have you guys heard Varagene tossed around? Anyone familiar with it? Or familiar with any like blood culture technology? Okay, perfect, you're in the right spot. They'll put only the first bottle on Virgin. So again, think you're getting six bottles per patient. All of those could pop positive, but we're not gonna run this like cool fancy test on every single blood culture that comes up. So what they'll do is they'll put the first one in and then they'll just do a gram stain on the rest to make sure they match. So if you see results that say like, oh, you know, molecular testing identified E. coli and then the rest are taking forever, that's why, they only did it on one. So they're just making sure that everything else is still showing up, gram negative rods, and then they'll get you that result later. 
What Varagene is, is an automated multiplex molecular diagnostic test, which is a big name for a PCR-based test. So it's looking at the organism's DNA. It can rapidly identify genus, species, and genetic resistance, and it gives you the identification. So this is the next step, right? You've got a positive result, you've got your gram stain, now we're telling you what it is. Keep in mind, the Varagene only has a few different um, targets that we'll talk about, but this genetic resistance is something that I really want to highlight. Does everyone here understand the difference between genotypic and phenotypic? So genotypic, right, is the genes that you have, and phenotypic is how you actually express them, right? Like, oh, I've got the genes for brown eyes, but I have blue eyes. So genetically, maybe I have brown eyes, but phenotypically, I have blue eyes. And that's the difference between that. So this gives you only genotypic resistance mechanisms. It does not tell you the full resistance panel for that organism. This is the workflow in this Microtech does not actually work here, um, but I think it is important to say that there is room for human error in this. So this prints off a machine, they have to put it in. So again, once you feel like you understand this, if you're seeing anything wonky or seeing anything weird that maybe doesn't match up, definitely call down to them. There is room for human error in this. It's not all just robotic putting in from one place to another. Now these are a gram-positive target. So there's a gram-positive panel and a gram-negative panel. They will only put your organism on one of those panels. So if you have a gram-positive cocci on your gram stain, they'll put it on the gram-positive panel. They're not going to waste time on the gram-negative panel because it's not going to find anything. And I have had an instance where the um, gram stain said gram-negative rods and I got a result of Staphylococcus aureus. I'm like, how did this how did this happen? We shouldn't have even been on that panel and it ended up being an incorrect result. And so those are what, that's why we want to teach you these things so that you can kind of identify those things. It could, I mean, lead you down a very drastic treatment difference, right? Vancomycin, which covers no gram negatives versus a gram negative agent. Um, but you'll see here what it does is go, it goes down in a stepwise path. So let me see if I can get this. Yeah, there we go. So it'll start here at the genus level. So is it staph, strep, or listeria? If it's one of these, then it'll move down here. Now you'll see we don't have any other Listeria species on here. That's because there's really only one clinically relevant Listeria species. Um, I even know organizations that won't put gram-positive rods, which is what Listeria is, on their rapid diagnostics because the only real pertinent one is Listeria. Uh, and so in those patients, you should be able to identify those at risk for Listeria. But if it's strep or, or staph or strep species, it'll then go down and say, okay, is it Staph aureus, Staph epi, Staph lugdunensis? Which Streptococcus group is it? Or is it Enterococcus faecalis or Enterococcus faecium? You can see they don't even mess with Enterococcus species up here because they know the difference and the importance of knowing if it's faecalis or faecium. Faecalis, right, is our more susceptible but more virulent one. And then faecium being our less virulent but more resistant. So this is typically your VREs. We have less than 10% susceptibility at our U of L health system for vancomycin for Enterococcus faecium. I can go on and on on why vancomycin is a terrible drug for enterococcus, but we'll save that for another day. So if you're getting these results, right, you can make a very quick and easy de-escalation decision or escalation decision. And then from there it goes over and says, okay, well based on this organism, do I have any resistance? So the MEC gene, the so MEC-A gene, is coding for methicillin resistance. And this tells you, it's so nice, tells you right away, MRSA, MSSA, immediately, you should have that result. And it goes down to VNA and VNB, which codes for vancomycin resistance to enterococcus specifically. So you'll know if it's VRE or non-VRE immediately. So I always tell people, they'll say, oh, well, I'm waiting for it to tell me if it's, you know, staph aureus, methicillin resistant or methicillin susceptible. You should know. And if you don't know, then there's an issue with the test or the report. Um, so you will know right away what you're messing with here. Same thing happens for gram negatives, but you can see it's a very small panel compared to the gram positives. However, these are the majority of the bacteremias that we see. Uh, there are larger panels with different brands. We have evaluated some of them, but this is what we have right now. So again, it'll give you very high level Acinetobacter species, Citrobacter, Enterobacter, and Proteus species. Um, these two kind of stink because we know there's some more resistant Enterobacter and Citrobacter than others, right? Citrobacter ferendii, we know we don't want to use Ceftriaxo, but maybe Citrobacter coceri might be able to get away with it. And then, of course, Enterobacter cloacae species are certainly something that we want to make sure we're using a more broad-spectrum agent like Cepapine for. Then it goes down to your species levels, so E. coli, Klebsiella oxytoca, Klebsiella pneumoniae, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Again, tells you this right off the bat. But the cool thing and the important thing with this panel for gram negatives is the resistance mechanisms that it has. So
So it has, what is that, six different resistance mechanisms, and it tells you it right off the bat. So CTXM codes for ESBL, right? So you know right off the bat, do I have an ESBL E. coli? Am I missing the buck? Am I missing the train on what I'm supposed to be using? These are carbapenemases, and so KPC is by far our most common carbapenemase. Um, and you can get some of these very resistant ones. So NDM, oxes, those are ones that, I mean, hopefully at this point you're calling ID because it can get pretty gnarly and trying to come up with treatment regimens for these people. Uh, but we actually got some great data at Jewish hospitals specifically, so don't take this and run with it, that are in patients with blood cultures who are CTXM negative, so no genetic resistance markers detected. There was 97% susceptibility to ceftriaxone in that patient population. So if you have that data available to you, then you're able to use these things and some other clinical scenarios with your patient, right? I wanna make sure they haven't grown a resistant organism before because this only picks up some of the resistance markers. Again, this is genotypic, not phenotypic. There are many ways that an organism can be resistant aside from this. But with that data, we did show very high susceptibility rates. And again, it tells you this right off the bat. So here you have a Klebsiella pneumoniae, no resistance markers detected. It will tell you if there are resistance markers detected. So you can feel more safe here in the right clinical scenario. And okay, I don't need something like meropenem. I shouldn't need something like ceftazidime avibactam or some of our bigger guns. You should feel more comfortable knowing that you probably have your patient on appropriate therapy if they're on one of our standard gram-negative agents. And this happens very quickly, yes. Mm -hmm. so I would like to know when they use the very gene in the culture, like how would we know? That they use a, how would we know that they use very gene? Yes. Know? So your result will pop up much faster. Okay. Uh, so this result will take place about two hours from your positive blood culture. If it's not on Veragene, it'll take significantly longer. And then it depends too. Sometimes they'll say like via molecular diet, it's not consistent. Um, but sometimes those results will say, you know, via molecular diagnostics, we were able to find this or some verbiage of that. Um, it'll also tell you if it was not identified on Veragene, which we will go through as well. Another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you've got, so the question was if um, you had a gram negative and a gram positive in your gram stain, you would, you would go through both. So they would put it on both of those panels. All right, any other questions before we move on from Veragene process? Okay, and again, this is very, very quick. Um, so here's an example of VRE being told to you right away. If you ever get a result that just says Enterococcus fecium, then that has not been designated as a VRE per the genes that they supply. Now, I think given our very, very low susceptibility rates to vancomycin, I always call and double check. So again, using some of your context clues, uh, but it will tell you right off the bat. So here we are, and you've got your patient who is sitting at what, maybe 15 hours? max after getting their blood culture and you know that they have a positive blood culture and it's likely you know the species and potential susceptibility of your organism so it's really really very rapid when we compare it to some of our older methods if it's not identified on Veragene I think like we said you know there's only so many targets it can hit if it's not this is what pops up unable to identify by molecular technology this does not mean it's a more resistant organism. This does not mean that it is uh, not an important organism. It just means it wasn't one of those targets. Important organisms that are not on there, Serratia, Morganella, Salmonella, right? So there are a ton of organisms that are not on there. I mean, there are thousands upon thousands upon millions of organisms. Uh, and so that's all that means is that you're just gonna have to wait a little bit longer. When this does happen, we do have to move to some of our more traditional microbiology techniques. So that's when they take the organism, they plate it, they wait for it to grow in the auger. Again, throwing it back to your very early microbiology and biology days. And that takes about 12 hours. So again, you're waiting for this time to grow. So now you're kind of stuck with seeing what the organism does. Sometimes it doesn't grow. There are certain strep species that just don't do great in the lab unless you put them on the right auger in the right environment, give them the right nutrients. So there are times that you might have a positive blood culture and then nothing grows, depending upon what the organism is. After it grows, we put it on something called Malditoff. Has anyone heard of Malditoff? It is a wonderful tool and it's why you see all the weird bugs that you've never heard of before. So Maldi is like yay high, sits on a countertop, so a little bit smaller, but it's mass spectrometry. And so what it's doing is it's measuring the mass of that organism as it's flying through. They had a, you know, a very, very simple acronym. I like to think of it, they were very creative. 
Um, but it has a much wider array, so they have a huge catalog of organisms that they can identify. And this is how they identify anything not on Verigene. This is how they identify most of your other cultures that you're sending, like respiratory cultures, your own cultures. They're letting them grow and then putting it on here so that they can identify it. The test itself is like five minutes. It does not take long for them to figure out what it is. You just got to wait to get a good sample from that organism growth. And again, this takes about 12 hours or so just due to the time you have to wait for it to grow. I'm going to kind of move quickly through this because we're already at 2 p.m. from what I can see at the top here. Is that accurate? No, 15 minutes. Okay, this clock is a little fast. You got nervous. Uh, so what do we do with this? Right? So you get all this information fast. Like I said, if you're not acting fast, is that really helping you? And has that been shown to improve anything? Like, do we just have these cool fancy toys or can we actually do anything with them? And this is from Verigene. So as you can see, as you would expect, Verigene has a much quicker time to results and identification of your organism compared to your traditional blood culture workflow. So you're looking at like 15 hours here versus 48 hours here for your results of what you, your patient even has. They have also looked at it with stewardship interventions, antimicrobial stewardship interventions. So this was a study in 2016, and what they looked at was their control, so their traditional microbiology techniques. Then they looked at just having a stewardship program interact with those, or those techniques, uh, and then they added the BCID. So you can see here, if you kind of, kind of put all the shapes together, for organism identification, much faster with BCID, right? We know we have a much shorter time. Uh, blood culture positivity, not really any different. But when you start looking at this effective therapy and de-escalation, you can see here that effective therapy, and this is the rapid technology mixed with your antimicrobial stewardship program responding to that and making recommendations based on it, time to appropriate therapy, five hours, compared to 15 hours and 13 hours. If you're looking at antimicrobial de-escalation, you're looking at a 48-hour window instead of almost 60 hours in the other two. So this is why we as a stewardship program and as a stewardship team respond to your blood cultures. We send you these text messages, these email, you know, page you, whatever it may be. Hey, your blood culture came back positive. What do you want to do with this? Because you don't get that call, right? It's up to you to go back into the patient's chart and evaluate if their blood culture was positive and what came out of that. And I think this is one of the biggest gaps that we see is, okay, they were called, you know, four hours ago about their blood culture being positive. Well, they're on ceftriaxone and azithromycin for CAP. They didn't make any changes, but four hours ago, it came back as MRSA. No one's done anything because you didn't get a call. And that's why we're here to help bridge that time between them. They also looked at it had any improvements in morbidity and mortality. And so again, this is rapid diagnostics with antimicrobial stewardship interventions. And you can see here in this forest plot that it is trending towards the uh, better morbidity and better mortality with rapid diagnostics paired with the antimicrobial stewardship intervention. And this was a huge systemic analysis, or, yeah, systemic review um, of multiple different studies. You can see spanning all the way from 2006 up to when this was published in 2017. So it certainly can have impacts in your patients. It also affects adverse events. So this was a study, again, that was done in 2019, looking specifically at, okay, I've got a patient with a gram-negative bacteremia identified on rapid technology, and I know it's not pseudomonas. If I de-escalate them off of that anti-pseudomonal within 70 or 42 hours, 48 hours is what they used, does that make a difference in C. diff rates? And it drastically did. You can see here the difference between more than 48 hours and less than 48 hours is about 2% to 7%. That's a huge decrease in C. diff rates. So that's why we know, again, every dose matter, every day matters, uh, every intervention matters in these patient populations. What can you do? I think the biggest takeaway from this is if you see a new result communicated, you might be the first one to see it. Uh, maybe you're not taking care of that patient that day. It's one of your colleagues. Hey, just shoot them a text. Hey, do you see that blood culture result come back? Because you can make such quick decisions on it only if you see it. Ensure your anti-infectives will cover your initial result. I would say I'm not mad at anyone for starting big and then narrowing down, having a plan to narrow down. Once you get these results, which will happen quite quickly, as long as you have a plan to target your therapy, you should be good to go. And then make decisions based on it. Utilize these tools to their utmost importance and know what tools you have because if you go somewhere different, they might have something different or we might make changes. And of course, you can call us if you have any questions. And that essentially takes an additional 12 hours with Maldi-Toff, but now you're looking at, let's see, 8 to 12 hours, um, 2 and a half hours, so 15 versus 24 hours, right, with rapid diagnostics, so half a day's difference in your patient's um, treatments. 
Okay, I'm gonna move on to T2 and I'm gonna try to go through this pretty quickly. Has anyone heard of T2, utilized T2? Do we feel comfortable with T2? Do we know what it is? Okay, T2 is different than blood cultures. T2 is unique, T2 is expensive. So it is one of our diagnostic stewardship interventions that it is restricted and there are only certain patient populations in which you can order it because there's only certain patient populations that it actually helps. It's magnetic resonance for whole blood samples. So think like magnetic resonance MRI technology, right? But this is in cellular DNA. It's really cool, it's really novel, uh, but it can identify organisms on this targeted panel. So here you've got five bacterial species and five different candida species within three to five hours. You're not waiting for your blood culture to become positive. It is initially three to five hours. Is it there, is it not there? It's restricted here at UofL to ICU patients. I think of this as something, it's a screen for your patients, right? It's a screen for what empiric antimicrobials should I have this patient on. So in patients in septic shock or our solid organ transplant oncology patient population, our immunocompromised patients. Um, it has to be ordered with blood cultures. So again, it's a screen. If you're not pairing that with blood cultures, you're not gonna get your confirmation or not. It's really meant to bridge that gap of negative blood cultures, um, but you need to have those blood cultures with it to compare. And it shouldn't be repeated within 72 hours, and it shouldn't be repeated for test of cure. So you should not be repeating these to see, oh, okay, well, my T2 is positive three days ago. Is it negative now? Am I doing the right thing? That's not what this is for. Again, this is a screen to get your patient on the right drug or to get them off the wrong one. What do you make of the results? I think these are some big questions that we have. Okay, well, my T2 is positive, but my blood culture was negative. Yeah, that's the point. That's the reason we do T2, right? Your blood cultures can be impacted by things like antimicrobials, poor blood draws, but your T2 is not impacted by antimicrobials. So you can have a patient on antimicrobials and let's say they're not getting better, you wanna see if something else is happening, their blood cultures have never been positive. Well, if you hadn't initially ordered a T2, you can order a T2 and get that screen back and potentially could show you if you're missing an organism or not. The big piece, or the big part that comes into play with this is the Canada T2s. And so they recommend in immunocompromised patients that if you have a patient who is not improving on antibacterial therapy, well, we know sometimes that those fungi or molds or what be it, uh, specifically the candida can be difficult to grow on blood cultures, but you can get a T2 and I'll tell you if there's even a small level of candida there. Wonderful tool. Please don't overuse it. We don't want to have to restrict it more. So just understand the ins and outs of it. Um, it has a very high negative predictive value. The positive predictive value is not as high. I think some things that come into play here is there's up to a 10% false positivity rate with Canada. So we probably test everyone in the room here and somebody would have a positive T2 for Canada, but looking around, it doesn't look like anyone's fungemic. So I don't know. I mean, maybe somebody's like sweating and I can't see it. Um, but you just have to keep that in mind. Use it in your clinical scenario. Don't use it as your make or break. Mm -hmm. You order it with blood culture. So when you go into blood culture, you just type in T2. But again, restrict. I wouldn't do it on your floor patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got a question back here. Oh, here's an ordering question for T2. Mm -hmm. So like ICU patients, I'm having pre in the morning with my resident for my intern. And I'm like, oh, I need to order blood culture on this person. And then we round, and then it's 10 a.m. And we're like, oh, now we need to order a T2 because I didn't think of that pre in the morning. I now have to reorder blood cultures the policy so technically states that you can add on. So here they wanted blood culture out of same and same time with the T2. Right? Yes. So the issue with the T2 is the modality in which it's um, ran. So it needs its own special bottles. It needs its own special drawer. Right? So, that can be so you can't necessarily just like use your blood culture bottle and go for it. Now our policy technically states you can add it on. The logistics of that is where it gets kind of funky because like you're saying, like we're both saying, you know, you can't necessarily do that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the whole point of it is to compare it to that blood culture. So in theory, you should be getting those blood cultures at the same time because something could have happened. You could have had a transient bacterium. You know, there could be a lot of things that play into that. We talk a lot about it when we do um, bank dosing as well. It's just what can happen, you know, you want them to be on essentially the same curve. You want the same sample. And so while it's frustrating to 
get those additional blood cultures. Technically, for the T2, you should be getting blood cultures concomitantly with the T2. Now, do you have to get all three or all four of those blood cultures? Probably not, because for the utilization of determining transient bacteremia, persistent bacteremia, colonization versus contamination, right? You've got those ones from earlier, so maybe you can narrow it down and get like just two of them instead of the three or the four, um, but you should still be getting them with the T2. It make a whole lot of sense to me. Like, if we're, we're all playing a game of like, like probabilities here, right? Wouldn't it make sense that like the likelihood that something obscure happens within that two hours is probably relatively low? Because like these are all sensitivities, specificities that are pretty high. Likelihood that something happens though within a couple hours, it shouldn't be able to be out at all. And then you can interpret those results with understanding that okay. Could have happened, but most likely you can still help de escalate stuff versus right. having to book your patients, get more labs, do all this stuff. So yeah. cool if it does follow that. You know what I think the problem is that they need a different sample for the T2. But you're saying go back and just redraw only the T2 with the small amount of blood that it needs. So the issue with that is um, uh, lab, right? Like getting getting those drawn at an appropriate time. If you could assure that you could go in and draw them within 30 minutes of that blood culture being drawn, sure. But with our phlebotomy shortage right now, the probably the window expands from yeah sure it should be two hours but now it's four to six hours our, our policy does state that you can add them on you can add them on as an order and they should go get them i reviewed it this morning so you can like actually go and add them on it's just the logistics of that and if you did have um, you know something you wanted to call down always what i would do call the micro lab say hey i got these blood cultures 30 minutes ago now i want a t2 is it okay if i just go ahead and do that or what do you need from me because you don't want it to get inconsistent and maybe you have one person that says you can't and one person says you can now you've wasted all this time all this energy so technically the policy says you can add them on the logistics of that is where it comes into maybe maybe not not really sure how that's going to play out mm -hmm. Yeah, that's part of their lab policy. Who's considering our qualification? Is it just BMP? Is it active chemo? Uh, in, technically, in our policy, it is um, patients who are immunosuppressed, like on our oncology units. It's not necessarily restricted to certain services. Like, it's not that an oncology provider only could order it. But you would want to think patients like BMT, undergoing chemo, it's broad for our oncology patients. Any other questions about T2 before we move on? I'm gonna move through susceptibilities. Um, so this is an intro to susceptibility testing. We'll kind of go through it very quickly, but this is why you have to wait for susceptibilities, right? You get, you get your organism, you're wondering how long it's gonna take until you get your susceptibility result. There's three main ways we do susceptibility. So there's disdiffusion, e-test, and broth microdilution. I'll go through each of these. They're all important in their own ways. So the first is disdiffusion. This is like the poster child, I feel like, of susceptibility testing. So you imagine this big, auger, you've got different impregnated discs of antimicrobials. So there's very standard antimicrobials they use in the lab that are not necessarily things we use in clinical practice. In vitro, certainly different than in vivo. So keep that in mind. Uh, but it gives, gives you this zone of inhibition. So you're looking for an inhibition of growth around that disc. You can see here there is no inhibition zone around this disc. That one is probably going to be deemed resistant, even without me measuring how many millimeters apart that is. This one has a larger zone of inhibition. These are all different for the different antimicrobials and the different organism that you're testing. Um, so there are standards and looking at those dis distances from the disc and seeing how far they are and if that goes to a susceptible, intermediate, or resistant result. And it only gives you that. They don't give you the numbers. They don't tell you how far apart the zones of inhibition are. For this test specifically, we only give you a result, like the susceptible, the interpretation. We do this on most of our pseudomonas because it messes with some of our other technology that we have. Cystic fibrosis patients, just because of the stickiness of the organisms that they grow, doesn't always do well in our automated susceptibility testing. 
the next is an e-test. so if you're ever calling down to the lab and saying, hey, i want you to check susceptibility for this specific agent, this is what they're doing. so they keep these on hands for our broad spectrum agents like cefadericol, if you've ever heard of that, that's an e-test. doxycycline is not on our standard panel, so you have to ask them to put an e-test, which is a lot of times not necessary because you can infer certain susceptibilities based on the ones that they actually run. it's all very standard. And this actually gives you an MIC. And so what an MIC is the minimum inhibit inhibitory concentration. This is the number that you can see, but we don't report them. Um, has anyone ever been anywhere where they do report them? Okay. The reason we don't report them is because we don't want people going through, it's another diagnostic stewardship and saying, oh, that one says two, that must be the best one compared to one that says four. It doesn't matter relative to the other agents that are on there, comparing them doesn't make a difference. And um, what you need to do is you need to just review the interpretation of susceptible, intermediate, and resistant, and ignore that MIC result. Sometimes the ID group will go through and request those MICs because there are certain instances in which you can overcome that with dosing at higher levels. Uh, so we'll, you might every now and then see one release and it's likely that we were trying to evaluate it to see if we could overcome that. And then this is an example of that. So you can see here that erdipenem says greater than one and amipenem and meropenem say eight, but erdipenem doesn't even work for pseudomonas originosa, typically speaking. Uh, so even though that number is lower, it would be a terrible option for pseudomonas. All right, those take about 18 to 24 hours. Again, you gotta wait for the growth. You have to wait for them to react to the antimicrobials and for that to be read. The next is broth microdilution. This is the fun one, I think. This is the standard in most laboratories, what most automated susceptibility testing models do. And what you're seeing here is a 96 well plate. Each of those wells have different concentrations of antimicrobials in them, and then you're inoculating each of those wells with a certain number or certain concentration of organisms. And so they'll read it, and it depends on the type of plate. Sometimes they're looking for fogginess, sometimes they're looking for fluorescence or color changes. Um, and so that's how you can tell. You're basically looking saying, okay, foggy, 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 clear, that's your MIC. This is what we have here. It's our automated method for susceptibility testing. It's called Microscan. This one's fun because it's looking at fluorescence, so it's looking at color changes. It will read that panel and then spit out a report for the microbiology text. Based on that report, they'll run additional tests if needed, but it's very, very quick and it's very useful. So you do have to wait for the organisms to grow in there, but it's nice because you can just put them in and then it'll tell you when everything is done. And again, that takes about 15 to 20 hours. So you'll get your organ, I always say it's good to estimate like 48 hours for a full panel result of your blood cultures if it's picked up on Veragene and if it's getting um, on the microscan if they're able to do susceptibilities on that and you're not looking for anything funny. Sometimes we have to send things out and they can take days, weeks, months, depends on the organism, but usually looking at 15 to 20 hours for the susceptibility testing after you get your result. This is how it looks. Um, you might notice something like here, the VRE, you can see the drug of choice for VREs, DAPTO and linazolid, right? Uh, we don't report it, which is not on purpose. Uh, some of our IT things are moving very slowly through the micro lab because they unfortunately only have one person that does all of this. So in theory, this is called cascading reporting. So what would happen is if you have a VRE, so this vancomycin was resistant, it would then automatically go and show you DAPTO and linazolid, right? That makes sense, that's cool, we can use technology. Doesn't currently work that well. So if you're ever, you ever have an organism, it's like, oh my gosh, it looks completely resistant or this doesn't make sense to me. It says ceftrax and resistant and then drops down to Bactrim and doesn't give me like cefepime, meropenem. It's on there, I promise. It's just that they have to go in and release that for you. So if you ever have any questions, again, reach out to the pharmacist on your team. Um, they're able to look through one of our auxiliary programs that we use, and they can also call the micro lab for you to get that taken care of. Your total time, again, like I said, I usually go for 40 to 48 hours. Um, you, the, trying to conclude very quickly here, because we're already past time, I don't want to keep you guys too long. Use your tools to their utmost potential. Right? You spend time learning about these things. Know what the test you're ordering does. Know how to interpret that result and know how it's supposed to show so that you can tell if there's something wrong with that result or not. Understanding the microbiology process is important for antimicrobial stewardship. 
So like I said, we get a ton of these questions. Hey, what does this mean? What does this mean? Is this important? Is this not important? So trying to understand those processes are super important. And the micro lab loves to help you guys make decisions. They can help provide supplemental information uh, to you. And if you talk to Dr. Snyder on the phone, he's really great at talking you off a ledge or talking you up onto one. Uh, and so if you are ever interested in, hey, I'm not sure what to do with this sample, should I get susceptibilities? Do we test this or do we treat this? You know, what do we do with it? He provides wonderful advice from the microbiology standpoint. And here's your ID pharmacist contacts. We have a new one at Jewish Hospital. We're very excited for Carly. Um, and so you have Ashley and Julie that are here at UofL. Me and Carly are for every other site. Uh, and so if you're ever anywhere, this is how you get a hold of us and we're more than happy to help. Again, kind of speeding through that last part there. So if there are any questions, I can definitely hang around and answer them for you.